Welcome to the Refresh Moms podcast. I'm Deanna Mason, your host, and I'm so happy to have you here. I am back with our Women Who Lead series. I took a break last week because I felt like we needed to make room for what was going on um, globally in regards to the horror and the uncertainty and the terrorism. And I don't know how many words we can use to describe what's happening in Afghanistan. And um, our continued prayers are needed. This is not something that we can just pray about when it's populating our media. It's definitely on my radar differently than it's ever been. And um, if you wanting scriptures or wanting something to give you an approach to prayer that's guided in regards to Afghanistan, I just invite you to hop in last week's episode and um, and do it. But we're back this week with the Women Who Lead series. And this is probably my favorite episode out of the ones that I've recorded um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the topic where we're navigating today is about women in ministry, women who are leading in regards to ministry. This has been something that I have wrestled with for years because I have grown up in different faith spaces or Christian spaces where women's voices were not celebrated, were not valued in regards to speaking in like pulpits or teaching to an entire congregation, women pastorship was seen as sinful. Um, these are the things I've grown up with and grown up with. I'm 48, but <laughs> these are things that I've been exposed to in my lifetime and has me struggling or had me struggling for years because I felt that God was asking me to lead as a woman who spoke to crowds in re- around his word. I felt like that was something God had equipped me to do and has had asked me to do, but I did not want to be out of his will and plan if the Bible was clearly saying that I wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> A soul and heart wrestle for years. And I've since resolved things for myself. I've come to a certain place in my theology, not just my feelings or what I think is right, but after studying scripture and understanding what I believe is being articulated and demonstrated and modeled in scripture, I have landed in a place that has brought me to freedom, embracing the gift to teach and speak around the word two groups of people. Okay. So that is where I am personally, but I still have women in my spaces that are in or attend churches where they're, this is not a shared theology. They are feeling a call of God into ministry, but they are not feeling like they have an opportunity to, to um, share in that way. And therefore they create other avenues to do it that feels safe, you know, so I'm going to speak to women because nobody really cares if we're speaking to a group of women or children. (laughs) That's usually not the problem. If we get a speaking engagement to a mom's group, 
nobody's trying to stop us. If we're going to go teach in children's ministry, which is still ministering around God's word in many places, it's not childcare. It's literally teaching these young souls and hearts around the Bible. Right. But it's okay. If we get invited to speak on a woman's day event or a mother's day event, no problem. (laughs) The problem comes when we're speaking to a group of men and women in an authoritative leadership role. Okay. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And there was no one else that I could even fathom thinking about talking about this, but my friend and my pastor, Phil Manginelli, he, um, him and his wife, Emily, and I will link back to my episode with Emily in the show notes as well. But they're, they're, first of all, I think they're amazingly intelligent and brilliant around scripture, very, very well studied and very submitted to the heart of Jesus. And there's something about having this extreme love and passion and fire for Jesus coupled with a passion to study the Bible that really speaks to my heart. And I get it in both of them. I get them in the leadership of Emily and in the leadership of Phil Manginelli. And that has never been the case for me. And I just absolutely adore them as a couple, them as my pastors and you know, the significant voice that they have in my life as I navigate my own Bible study and getting in touch with what I am exploring in regards to Jesus's heart. And so it gives me great pleasure to share this episode with you and Pastor Phil's attempt to address this topic on women who lead in ministry. I do want to say that this is not an attempt to, to convince anyone of theology, okay? It, it's absolutely not an attempt to try to combat something that you may hold to be true in regards to what you understand around scripture. It's just our opportunity to share around what we believe the Bible is sharing with us, but we want to honor those that are seeking clarity around Jesus's heart on this topic and just land somewhere differently. Okay. I just want to honor that because the, the, the most important thing is that we're going after the heart of God regarding this, not after our own thoughts, our own opinions, (laughs) our own feelings, but what does God have to say? What has been displayed in scripture? What has been modeled in scripture? What has been taught in scripture? And with the best of our ability, best of our understanding, our study, this is where we land. All right. So if you are a woman minister or a woman who feels like God is calling them into ministry, this episode is exactly for you. And I want you to like bookmark it somewhere because you're going to want to listen to it more than once. It's so rich and it's very hard to consume it all in one setting. But before we hop in, let me go ahead and introduce Phil Manginelli to you. Phil serves as lead pastor of The Square in Atlanta, Georgia. He and his wife, Emily, have four children, Jacob, Rowan, Ariel, and Cyrus. Prior to moving to Atlanta, Phil and Emily were missionaries with YWAM, 
um, and then student ministry pastors and internship directors at Mill Creek Foursquare Church north of Seattle. In late 2012, God put a burden of church planting on their hearts. What started as a Bible study in their living room has grown into a thriving community with the vision of a church plant movement throughout the city of Atlanta. I just invite you to enjoy and listen to the ministry gift of Pastor Phil Manginelli. You are listening to the Refreshed Moms podcast. This podcast is dedicated to all the moms out there who are leading, no matter what capacity you are showing up in leadership, whether you are an entrepreneur or a ministry leader, maybe you are homeschooling right now or anything in between. However you are leading as a woman and as a mom, I want to help you consistently nurture your faith enjoy consistent opportunities for rest and if you happen to be a business owner generate consistent revenue i'm deanna mason your host and i'm so glad to have you let's get started pastor phil hi deanna (laughs) this is so awesome okay so i get confused on even what to call you because everybody around me calls you phil and my my traditional upbringing, I can't even bring myself to say, hey, Phil, I can't even do it. Oh, no, I love it. Listen, yeah, call me whatever you want. Um, <laughs> I, I always, you know, when I came from Seattle, Emily and I were youth and college pastors in Seattle for just over six years before we moved here. Seattle is like, a, it's a really anti-authoritarian culture. Okay. Uh, it's also a really authentic culture, like there's strengths and weaknesses of it. But one of the things that you pick up in the culture, anyone who would uh, like demand a title in Seattle culture is very, it's, it's very negative view. And so I got really used to just, I think also just giving, giving people ease of just being like, Hey, I, you can just call me Phil. You can just call me Phil. Mm-hmm. And I remember a moment after we, and so when I moved here, you know, it, it, part of the South that I, again, South has strengths and weaknesses. One of the things I actually think is a genuine strength that there is, there's a value for a culture of honor. Mm-hmm. here. It doesn't always play out well. It's not always represented well, but it's a real value. And I think it's a, an incredible strength of Southern culture. And in it, I was, uh, every time people would call me pastor or call me, and I would be like, oh, you can, you can just call me Phil. And it was these little subtle kind of, yeah. not corrections, but I just was like, no, oh, you don't have to say that. And I was always very pushing off the title or, mm. or those kind of things. And I was actually, this was maybe a year after I was here, I was at somebody's house who was part of our church and was visiting them and never really had spent time with them in their home. And their mother and uh, their son was there and uh, their son came up to me and goes, he goes, Oh, hi, pastor Phil. And I just saw, Oh, but you can just call me Phil like that. And then the grandmother looked at me and just said, uh, said, sir, uh, you, you can want to be called whatever you want, but in my house, I'm going to have my son call you pastor. Mm. And I, I wish that you would respect that. And I was like, Oh, oh, <laughs> okay. That's all. You know, and it, but, but what hit me, something hit me in that moment was here. A lot of people, they're, they're not trying to put like a false title on me. They're not trying to uh, make some statement that I'm other or, mm-hmm. or even that, that there's some like arrogance or, uh, again, again, all those kind of concepts that I perceived it. And I was like, oh, people are actually just trying to express honor to me. And I'm yeah. actually robbing them from that yeah. when I tell them not to. And so for me, I've just kind of stopped. And yeah, so it's it's very, so very normal that people call me Pastor Phil. 
because it's a normal expression for them. And then I never call myself that. And so when I'm kind of connected with people, they they just learn to call me Phil. But I'm, I'm right. a PC the way now. And I actually genuinely uh, find it a point of beauty uh, that that people have a, a an idea that they want to honor and would come towards a pastor with a sense of honor. So now I receive it uh, joyfully. Okay, good. Okay, so that makes me feel even better because it, for me, it's always almost like a self-check in regards to the reverence that I want to always be there yeah. for the office and the role. And um, but also, I love the humanity of just saying Phil. You know, yeah. so it's like I, both sides of it speak to my heart. But I'm going to stick to my Pastor Emily and Pastor Phil because that's where I, I feel it. good. All right, oh uh, Deanna, and you know one of the funny things I've noticed the downside of that, right? So the uh-huh. high side of it is is honor. But the downside of it is there's something in the South that says pastors are untouchable, yeah, or they're or they're un- unaccessible or they're other, and um, and like you're not good enough to be on their on their uh, yeah, like an equal playing field. And and while I definitely think there is honor and the role of pastor and other roles in the church should be viewed with honor, uh, at the end of the day, I don't know how we went from servant leaders to untouchable leaders, mm-hmm. and so there's got to be that shift in people's thinking that I think it would be really healthy for people to go, okay, I want to come with honor, but I'm not talking to someone who, uh, who's somehow, you know, untouchable. And I think that is, that is the part of it that makes me sad. Yeah, I agree. Cause that's definitely my background. Um, going to church in the South, not necessarily when I grew up in Chicago, but definitely, um, my experience being church in the South, something that has even moved my, oh, I guess understanding or my heart position regarding all that is my recent study of Revelations, which you just taught in the school of the New Testament. But there is a, uh, I don't remember the chapter or passage because I just cannot, my my 48-year-old brain cannot, <laughs> just cannot, <laughs> that's, that's the whole sentence, just cannot. I just can't, but, just can't. Um, uh, John was talking with the angel, if I get if I have this correctly, and the angel is just revealing all these things, you know, in this revelatory vision that, that he journeys through through the book. And John gets to the point where he bows to the angel, and the angel is like stand up. Yeah. We are, we are all servants. Beautiful. You know, and it was like, and I know I'm paraphrasing it, Indiana Mason, but it was like, oh my goodness, because he was so in awe of what was being shown to him. All he knew to do was to, to bow down at the magnitude of the majesty. And the angel was like, stand up. Yeah. <laughs> this is no, this is no greater than what you are, who you are. We are all servants. And that just, that has moved my heart even more to just allowing myself to embrace that equity that you're talking about. But also I never want to lose the reverence. Okay. That was like a bonus episode. This is not what we're talking about. Oh my goodness. See, this is where I'm talking. I told, um, Uh, I told you that the problem is going to be me talking. uh, Is that going to (laughs) be, listen, if that's what you call problem, that's, that's a, that was beautiful. That's what we need to do the entire episode. <laughs> so 
I wanted you to come on and talk about this topic that is dear to me, women who lead in ministry. This is a personal journey for me. This is a journey that I see many women in my community. I've drawn many women into the entrepreneurship space that have business businesses around ministry work. And they, some of them are in spaces where they're not recognized in fivefold ministry roles. So they are, they are wrestling with these things that they do outside of the church. You know, the church community is what I'm speaking of. They're not speakers in their church. They don't right. teach in their church. You know, maybe it's in children's ministry or in youth ministry or in places right. that has been deemed acceptable for the woman to actually teach. But the things that they do outside of the walls with their events and, you know, speaking engagements and, you know, going to other women ministry groups and things like that. That's where they feel that void. I don't know the thing that's missing. I need to get this out. I need to share around the word. I need to be used by God in this way. And they start carving out these other places because they can't just not do it. Right. Right. But they're wrestling with, am I out of the will of God? Is this, you know, so that I see that happening over and over again. And this personally happened with me, you know, when I started doing my own thing, not out of not being recognized within the church, but I just felt like I have to get this out of me. I have to do this. And I don't need someone to give me a title. I don't need a label. I just need to do it. And I I cannot deny that this is a part of how God has made Deanna, but it's a wrestle as a woman. And I heard you talking in a podcast. I'm going to link to this podcast. Please let me remember to do it. I always say that. And I publish a (laughs) thing and the link's not in the show notes, but I want to link to the podcast episode you did with Jesus Culture talking specifically about women in ministry. It was one of the most beautiful things I've heard, which Thanks, is Deanna. why I wanted to invite you to share about this. So the first place that I want to start, though, is let's talk about some of the theology and the thinking behind women in fivefold ministry. So I'm going to let you talk and I ain't going to say not yeah. one thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, please do. And let's just hop into some of the theology, you know, yeah. based on where you are and where your understanding is now around women in ministry in the Bible. Yeah. Well, I love it. And I love you, by the way. I hope you know that. Um, (laughs) Emily and I want to start a Deanna Mason fan club. And (laughs) we've got logos and shirts um, uh, ready to go. Now, I, you know, um, for me, I think actually this is something that we, we have to actually start from a place of theology and, Mm -hmm. and not, and I say that because I think so many people, when it comes to what they would or wouldn't believe about women in ministry, genuinely, they come from either their experience or or a cultural mindset. And I think the, the truth is on anything of consequence, when we come to it from those perspectives, we're going to land somewhere a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm. And if we believe, and I, I, this sounds so simple, and yet it's everything, if we believe Jesus rose from the dead, if we believe he is the resurrected Lord of human history, if we believe scripture is a a right authority that is his authority given to us, then the answers for human flourishing, for goodness, they're not, they're in him. Like there is just a place in the person of Jesus where we come to going, he's good. He doesn't withhold. 
He's the kind of God who loves his enemies. He's the kind of God who washes the feet of people who betray him. He's the kind of God who came in his uh, on his own to redeem us. The kind of God who uh, who 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 owned our side of failure. He's like that's who he is, and his vision is more glorious, more beautiful, and more whole than anything we could ever want. And and so when it comes to issues that feel complicated or even scary, or where we want the answer to be one thing or another. It's so important that we come and go, I've got to have a vision of Jesus and a vision of Jesus then is represented through like a holistic expression of scripture, because whatever he has for me, whether it's permission or restriction on whatever category it is, it's good. And I think that what we have to recognize is that so many times we come to these issues and what we want to do is we want to force the Bible to say something, whether we're talking about women in ministry, whether we're talking about our lives, whether we're talking about marriage, whether we're talking about sexuality, whether we're talking about the Holy Spirit, whether we're talking about issues of race or justice, these things that deeply matter and actually deeply need to be understood and woven into us because God has incredible things for us to do, but they all start out of identity. And if we don't have that place of going, Jesus gets the right to speak my identity, right? Even Paul in Colossians Mm -hmm. says this phrase, my life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is my life, returns, my life returns with it. That vision of going all of my meaning, all of my identity, all of how I view life, it's so fixed in him. So on this, something is important in this. I think we have to go, I I can't view it anymore based on what culture tells me or what I want to say or my experience or what I think should or shouldn't happen. I've got to come and get the heart of Jesus. And And I don't do that anywhere else, but through his word. And then, of course, through his spirit, which stands uh, in alignment and always advocates for his word. And so to me, it has to be something that we reclaim theologically and but it has to be very holistically theologic. And because, again, it's really easy and we'll talk about this. It's really easy to open up to Corinthians and First Timothy. Going, hey, I'm standing on theology. This is pretty cut and dry. You know, yeah. Paul says to Timothy, not to let women have authority over men. I think uh, that feels pretty clear. Paul says in Corinthians that uh, women should not ask questions in church and should talk to their husbands at home. Like, I don't, like, okay, I've done my theology. Uh, it's pretty cut and dry and let's move forward. Anyone who, and there's that perception, right? Especially in whether you're in a uh, reformed kind of community or you, you've kind of grown up in, in men as only in ministry leaders and you go to this passage and go, well, I am standing theologically. Yeah. And I, I respect that to an extent, but my conversation is that we let the Bible uh, inform the Bible and we have to, anytime we take one thing and pull it out and disconnect it from the whole, we're actually building a bad theology. And when it comes to women in ministry, we have to have this holistic from Genesis to Revelation. What does is, what is Jesus teach? What does this church actually hold? Because I think when we actually come from it at that angle, what we're going to find is that it's far richer and far more complicated than we wish. Mm. And it's not complicated because God is passive aggressive or changes his mind. It's complicated because there's a vision in the scriptures that we often miss, which is that God has given us a lot of freedoms. And actually God has done this incredible work of new creation, but he has a desire that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. And he has no problem asking us to restrict certain things when the freedoms that he has given us don't make sense or somehow are used poorly in the midst of the vision that he has. Mm-hmm. And so I actually think when we we misunderstand that, that, that God is actually doing this thing. And so the Bible can have multiple voices and not because it's saying two different things, but it's speaking to an identity, a gospel identity, that there is freedoms that God has given us. 
But all of that, no matter what it is, is in subject to his greatest desire that his sons and daughters would partner with him for the sake of the world. And if Jesus takes a sacrificial position, if Jesus invites his church to take a sacrificial position, then we shouldn't be surprised that anything he wants to give us, he wants to give us and have a mindset where we hold it with sacrifice as well. And I think that's what makes women in ministry complicated from a biblical point of view is because the Bible seemingly has multiple voices on this issue. And where it feels really clear is in epistle, which is always the most clear part of the Bible Mm -hmm. and the easiest to kind of uh, discern and the easiest to break down and the easiest to kind of bring to points of clarity. And a lot of the places of affirmation of women in ministry in the Bible, which there are many, Mm -hmm. often come through narrative and they're harder to hold and they're harder to to know how to hold on to. And so I think this is what makes it a tough issue. And then of course you just have people who are, who are saying, well, listen, I, uh, you know, women, men and women are equals and we've got to let that function. And they're coming from a cultural position. And again, that's not bad at all. Men and women are equals. And thank God we live in a culture that actually believes that and values that. And it breaks my heart for how many years and how many cultures haven't actually held that ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, when our, even though that's true, when our base is culture, it's going to lead us to places because Jesus is other. He is not human culture. He is a counterculture. And his identity of the kingdom of God transcends all kingdoms of men. doesn't matter how right my cultural men kingdom even <laughs> gets it. I have to build on his kingdom and I have to trust his kingdom because his kingdom is always going to be unique and is always going to be filled with freedom and sacrifice, freedom and sacrifice. That's the way of Jesus, freedom and sacrifice new identity that picks up its cross. And so if we don't let him establish this, um, I think it's going to be tough. And so, okay, now that that was a lot of talking before I actually got to any answers. But so what I would say is, is so if we want to kind of pull in the theology of this, we have to do it from beginning to end. And again, in the podcast that you're going to link, I I do that a little bit more expansively, but let me, let me just touch on this from a high level, because I think one of the things I find true about almost every belief system in Protestantism and evangelicalism and charismatic church. I, I don't choose to uh, identify myself with any particular tribe. I just love and follow Jesus and I believe him and I believe mm-hmm. that the, the Bible is uh, accurate and trustworthy and his gift to us. So it, it puts me in those camps of, of that kind of Protestant evangelical world. And um, But in it, one of the things we've done is our gospel starts at Genesis 3, where the fall happens and we're senators of the world and uh, uh, we just have to come to, to the awareness that half gospels are not the gospel. And we've done this everywhere. And our gospel starts in Genesis one, which is the creation of all things and God endowing into us something unique. And when you actually begin to build a theology that starts in Genesis one, you're going to find something that, uh, God speaks equality, radical visions of equality into men and women. And you see that from the beginning, right? Genesis 1 is a picture of the creation of all things. We get this little picture of men and women being created. And then Genesis 2 is like a second story where God focuses in on that moment. And of course, I believe Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2 are also poetry. And so I don't think it's meant to be a science textbook. I would encourage anyone that that I I believe the Bible. I hold the Bible. I, I believe everything that the Bible teaches and that Jesus taught when we hold it and discern it rightly. But um, so here you have this incredible moment of a, of a retelling of creation and then a specific retelling of the creation of man and woman. But what we find in Genesis 1 is that men and women are both full image bearers. 
by the way, the only creation account that gives that to women, uh, uh, that they're both an equal in this, that they both have been given something about God has taken his image. And there's, there's things we can know about it. And there's mystery in it, but God has taken his image and he has given it both to male and female. So we're equals in the image of God. We've both been given the exact same assignment, which is to rule. And so there's a vision that we are co-rulers. And I actually think that is the word that I would use to describe what marriage is really meant Mm -hmm. to be. It's a co-ruling of many, many things. And that God has given men and women the exact same assignment in this vision of co-ruling together. And then in that, God, as he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, he speaks over them something different. He speaks over them a very good. And this is intentional. This is something significant. So there's something about men and women that are a different, set apart. They bring creation from good to very good. And those things are all shared in profound uh, equality. And then you get into Genesis 2. And what you see is this moment where, where you almost have this, Adam is trying to rule on his own. And I think this is actually one of the most important places of theology that we have to get. Because what we see is God has created man and woman, both image bearers, man and woman is both image uh, as, as rulers, man and woman has both very good. There's a shared equality in their creation. Mm-hmm. And then we see this picture of Adam ruling on his own and that God says, it's not good for you to be alone, that there's no, there's no, there's no one like you. There's no one for you. And so he creates Eve and it's given this title suitable helper. Yeah. And I, I think right there becomes a place where we don't realize how much we do this. We just infuse cultural understanding into the heart of that scripture. And so we go, okay, suitable helper. So, so women are helpers. That's what men, men lead women help. And, um, and then when you break down, you go, okay, well, is that actually what that passage is saying? And when you get to it, that first word uh, that we translate as suitable is this Hebrew word connecto. And it's a really hard word to translate. So I understand suitable in many ways is the best way to phrase it. If you're trying to use a single word, but it's this beautiful word that's actually far more important than we think that just means like, but not like. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we have to see that, that Adam and Eve are like, but not like, and there's something about that that matters. It matters for many conversations, but Adam and Eve like, but not like, and then this vision of helper, which is a, the right word for the, what they're using. But when you actually look at how that word is used every other time in scripture, it is used of God <laughs> coming to help Israel or the false way Israel would look to other Kings instead of looking to God. So it's a picture distinctly of when God would come with military aid to rescue Israel. Why? Because they were trying to rule on their own and they were incapable and they needed somebody else. So unless you think that somehow when God came to help Israel, he was subject to them, lesser than them, an assistant to them, (laughs) that he was just posturing himself as like, well, you're really in charge here. So let me come in and just place or mold. There's no way you can actually infuse that into that passage that what's actually being said about Eve is that man can't rule on his own. And he needs someone who is like, but not like him, a distinct vision of femininity, a distinct vision of the female reality. We share attributes of the image of God. And then we have unique attributes of the image of God. And here it's that picture of God is actually giving Eve to Adam as military aid And you realize it's a vision of doing what? Going back to Genesis 1 so they can co-rule. And so what it actually speaks about Eve is not even just about Eve. It's about marriage. It's about oneness. It's about this vision of male and female that just as much as Eve is a suitable helper to Adam, Adam is a suitable helper to Eve. They are 
military aid to one another because we have to catch this. We were made to co-rule together. And I believe that in life. I believe that in family. I believe that in marriage. I believe that in children. But I also believe it in the assignments that God has given us. And the assignment that God has given us more than anything is to proclaim the gospel and to see the transformation of the world through the image, power, and person of Jesus. That co-ruling is on us. And I would just say to, to so many churches, we wonder, we wonder why we're in a tough spot. Well, Adam, you're trying to rule on your own. Mm-hmm. And you've told, uh, you've told the women around you that they're meant to just be a helper as a diminished kind of role rather than realizing the task at hand requires both of us. Mm. And we have to come back to that place of co ruling uh, I can talk forever about that. I need to move forward. But when you begin to get into the Old Testament, what you find is there are powerful visions of women in ministry. You count Deborah, who is appointed by God as a judge over God's people. She was a prophetess, de- desperately trusted uh, by God, by, by, by the people around her. In fact, Barak, who is another one of the judges, when he was called to rule, feels like he can't even do what he is called to do unless he has Deborah's support. And Deborah comes alongside of him, rules himself. Uh, we have that amazing picture. You have Miriam, even, even going a, f- a little bit further back than that. You have Moses, who's certainly called as, the, as the, the main leader of Israel, but he has this executive team. And Miriam and Aaron come alongside of him in a way of profound leadership. Mir- uh, Miriam was trusted as a prophetess. She spoke over the people. She made leadership decisions alongside uh, Moses. When Moses was gone on these trips, it was Miriam who held the gun. By the way, Miriam is the only reason Aaron and Moses can mm. even figure it out together. Miriam mm-hmm. is an incredibly important figure. You have Holda, the prophetess, who is an incredible figure. And uh, one of the things I love about Holda is you have Josiah, which is this amazing story in the Old Testament, who's a king who returns Israel back to their identity. They find the book of the law. There's grief all around because they realize they've been living in rebellion. But who do they go to for help? They go to Holda. What does Holda do? Holda teaches the king and all of the leaders about the way of God, the heart of God, and the story of God. And Holda steps in. And, and while Josiah then comes and represents it, Holda actually is all of the theology. She's all of the resourcing in which uh, he then steps in. You have Esther who comes and, of course, is a rescuer of God's people. She's pointed to this profound place of authority. Uh, and, and you have vision, and there's more. You have vision all over the Old Testament. Yes, more men. And I actually think that 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 you need we need to take that into account. But I also don't think that that is something that uh, needs to be held as strange, especially in an ancient culture mm-hmm. where we recognize women have been given a unique assignment of giving life, giving birth to life and caring for life. And oftentimes, even in the freedoms that God has given us, Old Testament, New Testament, that's just complicated, right? That's just complicated. Yeah. That's not a theological statement. So we should have no surprise that men who uh, find themselves more often in the workplace, men who have been given, I think, unique assignments to that lead them to the workplace and in, in our embedded identity and a vision, uh, find themselves that they're in that place of leadership and oversight. There tends to be more men simply because of the beautiful and unique reality of the assignment of women. I don't think that should be something we have to act uh, doesn't exist or act like it cancels out. And again, I remind people of the passage in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus fully one with the Father. So if Jesus is the same forever, the Father is the same forever. He never changes or shifts. So I just say, we have to actually come to terms like, if God trusts Deborah, has he stopped trusting women? I mean, we we have to let the Old Testament have authority to us. We have to let it actually speak to us. If God trusted Miriam, 
if God trusted Hulda, has he just has something happened where he has stopped trusting women? I acknowledge that Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. You can't fully connect those two things and say, well, the same, but, but there's a picture of a, the character in the heart of God. And that's something we often miss. And we get into the New Testament and way more examples than, than I think we even understand. We could start with Mary Magdalene, first witness of the resurrection. We could start with Mary, who Mary and Martha, you have this incredible moment. Mary uh, is comes to the feet of Jesus. Martha's doing work in the kitchen. Martha's frustrated. She comes to Jesus and she goes, won't you tell my sister to come and help me? And really, we always make that passage about work and rest. And I'm sure it has some implications for that, but it's not about work and rest. It's about where women belong. And Martha's basically saying, I am choosing the cultural place that women should be. And, and Mary is abandoning me yeah. and going to the place where men should be, which is a place of a disciple. Being at the feet of Jesus is a place of discipleship. And what's Jesus's response? Mary has chosen the better. She's mm-hmm. chosen the better. And there's something there for us to hold on to. Then you get into all of the passages in the New Testament. You have Lydia and Philippi who is a clear leader in the church of the Philippians. You have Phoebe, who's a deacon, the exact same word given to many men who are recognized to be in unique places of leadership. You have the reality that Yodia and Syntyche are, Paul calls them co-workers in the gospel. These are female leaders. I'm, I'm just even thinking about, if I would not write a letter to my church about conflict that had to do with two people who weren't involved or two yeah. people who are at the side or two. These are leaders. These are women who are contending for the gospel. What is, what is the work he's referencing? If it's not some form of ministry leadership, what is the work he's referencing? If it isn't, isn't somehow Paul says of them, you are coworkers in the labor of the gospel with me. And he's compelling these two women. You've got to stand in unity. Your conflict has consequence for the church. And there's an incredible picture there. You have Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is uh, a discipler to Barnabas, one of the most important figures in the New Testament. Uh, or, or uh, And then you have the reality of the naming that Priscilla is always named before Aquila, yeah. which in an ancient culture gives her the primary status. Again, Paul calls her in Romans co-worker, co-laborer, laid down a life for him, for the gospel. What was she doing if, if Paul referenced her in these ways? Then you get into even Romans. Romans is so beautiful. Romans 6, Romans beautiful for lots of reasons. Romans 16, you get a vision of all of the people that Paul is mentioning. He's never been there, but he knows a lot of these people. And the people he's mentioning are the leaders of the churches, the leaders of the house churches that are there. You have uh, Tryphania, Tryphosa, Persis, Julia. They're all leaders within this Roman community alongside Priscilla. And then you have in the book of Acts, you have uh, Philip's daughters trusted as prophetesses to the entire church, speaking to the entire church. And even in that, part of it is that we don't really know how in our modern world to hold the structure and the formation of the church, which was really centered around the fivefold, which is not normal for us, which, by the way, needs to become way more normal yeah. for us. But the Bible's clear that the foundation of the church actually rests on the apostles and the prophets. And it is something for us to go that the first prophetic community held authority in a unique way over local churches and over local pastors. And so here you have Philip's daughters functioning in this authoritative role. And then in Romans, you have Junia. And Junia is, a again, a mysterious figure. And for a long time, because she's called, uh, you know, uh, highly favored among the apostles, great among the apostles, depending on the translation you use, people for a long time changed that name to Junius, which would have been a male name. Mm. Now nearly every theologian agrees that when we go to the earliest text, it's clearly Junia, clearly a female name. Even people who don't believe in women in ministry have all come to the point of like, this is definitely a woman. When John MacArthur admits it's a woman, you, you know, you can <laughs> the, the Greek in it, right? But 
it, you have this phrase, great among the apostles. And you know, that's really hard to discern. Uh, in fact, I, I really do hold it loosely. That could mean a lot of things. It could mean she is actually part of the apostolic community herself. Uh, but at minimum, she means she is deeply revered and loved by the apostolic community, mm-hmm. which again, I think has to communicate some weight. But here's what I think communicates more is that she's in jail with Paul and she yeah. is suffering with him. This is before the Neronian persecutions. This is before common Christians are being mistreated or going to jail. Who is going to jail? It's public ministry leaders who yeah. are refusing to not stop. This is a woman that is contending next to Paul in deep and profound ministry, one of Paul's closest friends. And I think there's just so many points where we where we actually we miss that. We miss the understanding of that. Not to mention when Paul gives, you know, his letter of Romans uh, to to be sent. He does so through a woman. And we go, okay, well, Paul makes her a letter, a letter carrier. What does that mean? Well, we don't understand what letter carriers were. Mm-hmm. Letter carriers were the orators. We've got to remember all of the New Testament is read to be uh, said out loud, right? The entire ancient world, maybe 5% of the world is literate. Every book in the Bible in the New Testament you have is a letter written to be read out loud. So it would have been oratory. So she would have stood up, she would have proclaimed the book of Romans. And then she was also given the assignment that she would theologically explain everything that people needed understanding on. So here, Paul has actually given the authority to explain his hardest, densest, most theologically rich book to a woman to carry. We've got to capture all of that. Then you get into Colossians and Galatians, this vision of new creation of Christ, no longer male, nor female, slave, nor free, mm. uh, barbarian, Scythian, you know, no longer Jew nor Gentile. Both of these phrases are different, but carry the same idea that God has done something in this work of Jesus where the dividing walls of humanity, as Ephesians 2 pictures, have come crashing down. And in that, a new, a new humanity, what Paul says has come in its place. And it's not saying it's not a taking away of male and female. It's actually a reality that something that has come between male and female has now been taken. What's that thing? Well, that thing is Genesis 3, where the curse comes in. And the distinct part of the curse is two that were made like but not like, co-carriers, co-rulers, co-equals, but they're different from each other, who were meant to function side by side towards one another, have now through the curse been shifted. And part of the curse was that to Eve, that she would look towards her husband and he would rule over her. It's a picture of what used to be side by side will now be broken. And we got to remember that's the curse. I don't know why we want a theology out of the curse. I'm pretty sure Jesus came to break every curse. (laughs) Um, And then you get into the hard passages. And again, Deanne, I'm sorry I'm taking too long to do this, but you get into first Timothy where Paul says a woman uh, should learn in quietness and in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, but the woman was the one deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue faith, love, and holiness with propriety. It's such a fascinating passage. And we should always read a passage like that and go, Paul, I have no idea what you're talking about. That that maybe (laughs) says something unique is happening. And again, I believe First Timothy. I don't reject First Timothy. And I honor people who hold hold it in, in a different way than I do. But I think we have to understand two things. One. Paul established the church of Ephesians, of of, of Ephesus. And so you have Timothy, a young pastor he's put into place. I just want to ponder, do we really think that Timothy would break a code that Paul had established? I don't think so. I think if there's women in leadership in Ephesus that now need to bring brought into correction, 
it's because Paul started a framework that would have allowed for it. I, I just don't buy the idea that Paul had established a church where women didn't have any place in authority. And then young Timothy, who's figuring out his way, is just going like, yeah, women, you can do whatever you want to. I just don't think that's actually what happened. I think you have a young pastor in a highly Gnostic culture who women are coming in, getting saved radically. We got to remember the, the book of Acts tells us about this radical salvation experience, this revival taking place in Ephesus, temple prostitutes, witches, mm-hmm. people who were functioning in this world. And all of the leadership of the Gnostic temple cults were done by women. So women came in from a Greek context of yes. being spiritual authorities, using their spiritual authority as leverage over men. And so they're coming into the church and they're beginning to do that. And without Paul, they're bringing strong correction to it. Timothy's getting overwhelmed by it. And so he comes and he brings correction saying, I'm not letting this happen. And even that word, I, I do not allow a woman to have an authority over men. It's a unique word. It shouldn't be there. It's Bible translators who I think have a theology that they're trying to hold to, but it's the only time this word is used in scripture. It is distinctly an abusive authority. Every other time the Bible says the word authority, it's a different word. So here in first Timothy, what Paul's saying, I don't allow women to have abusive authority over men. I've never allowed that clearly in that vision. We see that something unique is happening in Ephesus that needs yes. to be brought into correction. And then even that other part, by the way, women will be saved in childbearing. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> Why did you need to tell us that? Right? It's weird. Well, because that's what Gnostics taught, that in this dualistic world, women who entered into the place of flesh and, and, and body through childbearing would lose their gnosis, their secret knowledge. And so this idea, this fear was coming in through the myth of Sophia about this entire community that women who were moms we're going to lose this special thing that they had, which Paul says, no, that's not it. In the myth of Sophia, Eve, Adam is the one who sins. Eve is the one who's enlightened. And so Paul goes, that's not the real creation story. Let me remind you of the real creation story. And then you have uh, Corinthians, which again, I know I'm moving fast through these, but in Corinthians, you have this place where uh, Paul talks about women uh, not asking questions and talking to their husbands at home. And, and you go, okay, here you go. Yet and then another reason that we would say women can't be in ministry, but two mm-hmm. chapters earlier, Paul actually encourages women to prophesy in the church. Mm-hmm. He tells them to speak in the church. So whatever he's speaking to here, he's clearly either Paul, what, what is he doing? Is he, what, is, is two passages earlier a lie? Is this one the truth? Is two passages earlier the truth? And this one's a lie. Like, how do we hold that? Clearly Paul is speaking to something specific that's happening where there is a disruption. And in that disruption, women are finding it fitting to basically disrupt the service to gain understanding. Think about the other side of that. Paul wants women fully engaged. Mm -hmm. Paul wants women to fully learn. Paul views what they're doing. He's just saying, hey, where you need help, you can't disrupt the service to it. So clearly it was just something that was happening in a cultural context where Paul felt like he had to bring distinct correction. And again, in an ancient world, Women were far more illiterate than men, had far more education than men, which is broken. This is not how it should be. That's a cultural brokenness. And so Paul has all of these vision of bringing women into equality, but he goes, oh, but, but what you can't do, you can't actually uh, rob the experience. You can't actually break the service for it. Let's just find a different way. And I'm going to help you find it a different way. Because two chapters earlier, he says, women, you, you got to speak in church. You got to prophesy in church. And when you do it, you need to do it like this. And so I hold those two passages uh, distinctly. I believe them. I don't believe that they're cultural in the sense that I don't need it. I think what they're telling me is that God has given profound and unique freedom to women, but there's also times where what that requires has to be subject to the gospel and to what's good for all as every freedom we've been given in Christ. 
And so I hold that and say, yeah, I believe that. And I believe we have to have vision of, of what God's doing in that. And then as somebody who believes in the work of the spirit, we have to remember that the promise of Joel is that the spirit would fall on all flesh and male and women, uh, young and old, no matter your cultural context, free or not, there's now a pouring out of the spirit. And that spirit is actually the distinct place of leadership and anointing within the church community, which you and I believe has not stopped, has not ceased. So anyways, I think what I want to say is I honor people who want to come from a biblical position and land differently than me. Uh, But I also would say to them that I think we've created way too narrow of a vision of how we come to a biblical understanding of women in ministry. If we take a holistic look, I don't know how you hold the entire Bible and not see women everywhere. Yeah. I see women in every capacity. And I honor anyone who would, who, would, who would say, well, I see some restriction or this restriction. I get it. I get it. I have close friends who hold that. And I do believe they're coming at it from their best work at being faithful to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. But for me, when I come to the Bible, I see an incredible empowerment of women. What I see is a lot of cultural brokenness. Yeah. And I see the gospel flourishing. And Paul has a desire that our freedoms shouldn't be put above the gospel, but where they can flourish in the gospel, it's time for them to all flourish. Mm-hmm. So Deanna, I'm sorry. I feel like I just no. talked way too much. No, you, no, no, you don't have to apologize. It was so much, so much richness. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, gosh, so much I want to say. I'm not going to say it because it's, there's so much I want to say. Um, well, maybe we need to do a part two. Oh my gosh. There's so much I want to say. I'm going to, I'm going to, so here's the question I want to end on. I want to ask you, so for, you know, women that just heard this and are like, okay, this is like the first time anyone's ever spent that time to, to, to walk me through the Bible in regards to God's heart around women in ministry leadership. Some women are in spaces that are not going to honor that no matter what, where they land in their personal understanding. Do you have something to say to those women that feel like I, I agree with how you just explain that that speaks to my heart. I believe that is God's heart. That is where I am landing, but I am somewhere or I'm in a community or I'm in a culture that that is not honored. Yeah. What would you say to them? Yeah. Well, first I would just say, I I love you and I'm sorry. And I think about, uh, you know, you have this old Testament picture of, you know, uh, Hagar, I think that's right. Who, who's Abraham's, uh, mistress, uh, Mm-hmm. And who, who gets invited into the story where Abraham is uh, unfaithful to believe God in his promises, tries to take the promise into his own hands, and is she feels deeply mistreated as she, as she was, and it says she cries out to God and she calls him this name. It's the only time in Scripture this name of God is used, and it's just it means this: the God who sees me, mm-hmm. uh, the God who sees me. And I just want to remind people that's who our God is. He's the God who sees you. And I think there is something we have to receive in that, that when we feel deeply unseen, uh, we have to hold on to the truth that God does see and he meets us in those places. 
And my encouragement is this has to be something that you take to prayer and take to Jesus, because what I don't think works as much as it hurts is to try to respond to this from a spirit of yeah. uh, antagonism or blessing or, or rebellion. And I think you have to function from the place of blessing yeah. because I do believe there are many gospel centered communities that are not trying to be restrictive to women. They're just trying to be faithful to what they believe is right. And those, yeah. those people are our allies. Yeah. I, I say this all the time. I am not allied with people who believe in women in ministry. I am allied with people who submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Those are my people. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people who submit to the Lordship of Jesus and get things wrong, mm-hmm. but we stand on the same foundation. I'd rather stand with people who believe in the Lordship of Jesus and bring restriction to women than people who don't believe in the Lordship of Jesus and say women can do anything they want to. And that might feel difficult or strange, but I'm telling you, it's that place. We have to come to that place of love and honor towards others and and allow them in that. And what I would say is if you find yourself in that setting, you just need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, you have this community for me for this season. Because if he does, then it would invite you into a joyful place of honor where you can trust how God's going to develop that vision on your life for seasons that are coming. Because I, I think anytime we try to take something like this into our own hands, yeah. we just always have a way of perverting it. And I think God has, this is not just a you know male female. I think there's a lot of times God could place us in a community. I've been in communities that don't function in the gifts of the Holy Spirit as somebody who deeply believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And I understand that's different. This is, there's an identity here and it feels really hard when you are in a space that doesn't seem to have a vision for the fullness of your identity. But I do think there's something really beautiful about when we can come into a space and go, I genuinely believe God has me here, which means I can trust him with what I don't believe is available to me. And then I think where you go to that place and you sense God is actually saying, no, you have to get into a place where you can flourish in this Mm -hmm. part of your life. Then you can do it out of obedience to him and not out of anger or frustration, even where those feelings are justified and fair, they're not going to lead you to the fruit that you want. And part of it too, is that what Paul's clear about, this is a whole nother conversation on issues of, of what gender really means and, what is in male, what is in female. But one of the things I see for so many women that I think grieves me because I don't think it's their fault is that they feel like they have to become masculine to take positions of leadership Mm -hmm. that we've created. Leadership is in essence masculine. That's what we believe. So if I'm going to lead as a woman, I have to somehow enter into that space. And I actually think that is actually the the opposite. Uh, God, there's many types of women. And so there's many types of femininity that are bound within an image-bearing nature. There's not one type of woman that is godly. There is uh, many types of women who are built into an identity of godliness, but there's that place what the church desperately needs is women who would lead who are women, women who would lead who are mothers, women who would lead who bring what they bring to the table. I, I say this all the time. I, I think one of the biblical visions is when women are in the room, the best part of men comes alive and the worst part of men gets restricted. And when men are in the room, the best part of women come alive and the worst part of women get restricted in terms mm-hmm. of our, our differences. And of course, in a, in a good space, in a space mm-hmm. of honor, I'm not saying that generally, but this is what happens right. is we co-rule, we need each other. And I actually think a lot of the dysfunction of the church is you have Adam trying to rule alone and everything that Eve would bring to the table that would make us richer, more full, more whole, more life-giving, more prophetic, more profound, more theologically dense, more holistic. We've divorced. Yeah. And I just, so I would say to women, God sees you and you've got to let that actually be your anchor because any time our identity 
has to be built on somebody else seeing us. Yeah. It's going to lead us somewhere we don't want to go. It's and I know lead that, us somewhere we don't want to go. And I just want to say, I know how easy that is for me to say and how hard that is to receive. To have to walk out. Cause it's, I, you know, I can, <laughs> this conversation I can carry into my work with my nonprofit. Um, when you're talking about social equity and my desire to approach it from a biblical foundation, a biblical lens, but it really boils down to what you just said. You, you have to honor the equity that God has created for you. There's something higher in his equity than our cultural definitions of what equity should look like. There's a passage of scripture that's been just, you know, just touching me in Colossians chapter um, two that, um, and this is just like my surface level of digging into it, but it talks about the shadow versus the substance. Mm -hmm. And I've just been playing around with that and like, God, what is the shadow? What is the substance? And it's like, I don't want the shadow. I want the substance. Now there's good in the shadow but it's not the substance. And so yeah. I, w- I just start playing around with what, what, what could those be? And it's like, well, you know, a shadow could be when I'm talking about equity work, um, like diversity, equity, inclusion and in companies and things like that, yeah. you know, the shadow could be, well, I am not going to touch my female employee in- inappropriately because that it goes against our policies, right? I don't want to break our sexual harassment policies, but the substance is, I will not yeah. dishonor her yeah. because of the value and honor that I have for this woman. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want just behavioral adjustments to what we think is equitable. Yeah. Yep. That's not what I'm after. I'm after the true equity that God displays, the true equity yeah. that God defines that work being done in the hearts of men, right? Men and, you know, human. And I see that even with, when you're talking about women in ministry, like for me, my heart's desire for men that may not share this same position on women in ministry, my heart's desire for them to be closer to God and for God to change and draw them is much stronger than me wanting them to recognize my gift as a, a woman in ministry. So if that means that I have to walk in restraint in order to make room for God's work in their heart, that is of greater value than recognizing me as a woman in ministry. Right. And that's the, that's the thing that we're, so if you're in a space where you're like, they don't see me, you could very well be correct. They don't see you. Your responsibility is what is God asking of me? And it could be you're here for a season. There's things I want you to do. And yes, that means that you will be walking in restraint and trust that my restraint is good. My restraint is there's always goodness in that restraint. Or you could be in a season where God is like, I need you to be in another place because there's things I need you to do and you're not going to be able to do them in a place of restraint. Right. Right. That's your responsibility. It is not anyone's responsibility to recognize your gift. Yeah. (laughs) Your responsibility is obedience. 
disobedience and trust that when you feel like, well, I ought to be able to, they ought to put, you got to put, you got to submit that because yeah, you ought, you ought to in a perfect cultural condition, you ought to, but we are not living out our faith, looking for shadows. Yeah. We're looking for substance. Yeah. And sometimes culturally speaking, that means a season, if not a lifestyle of restraint, as well as, what did you say? The permissions, the permissions and restraints, they go hand in hand and they both bring us to the goodness of God. Yeah. We just have to believe it. And it doesn't, it's not always comfortable and it doesn't always seem fair. And sometimes it sucks. (laughs) Yes, it does. That's not where we bow. We don't bow to cultural acceptance yeah and feeling like i need to feel accepted that's a valid thing to want to feel yeah but when we are called to spaces that we are not necessarily feeling that way then we've got to have these conversations with god what are you asking of me what is the more what is the higher call and be willing to trust and lean into that man yeah it's amazing and I even just think, you know, even when I, you know, I have these conversations, uh, there, of course, I think about my own wife and one, how everything that we believe, we believe together, everything I even speak about has been so by shape. My, my wife is, this is not even a, a an attempt to be kind or honorable. She's smarter than I am. She <laughs> is, has greater intellectual capacity than I do. She has faith in places that I don't. And and, you know, we've always led together, but then even, you know, I've, in this last season, as we've had little kids and uh, we have felt what, you know, Emily has uh, uh, led from that space uh, in, in a way that has meant I have had more freedoms than she has. Mm-hmm. And as I've watched Emily, you know, I remember a conversation I had with her several years ago of like, am I just want to be so, so many of these things that are happening in our lives, I want to be there together. I want, I want you next to me in this. I want to be next to you in this. This is us. This is not me. This is us. And just the simplicity of what's in her heart that says, the Lord sees me. Like mm. there's no, there's no where he's taking you that he's not taking me, nowhere he's taking me that he's not taking you. And God, God has my future. So whatever it looks like out there, and that is the mystery of everything. And it's so hard to hold on to. But the mystery is no matter what it looks like out there, what is true in Jesus is actually what's true. Mm-hmm. And when we hold that, uh, the most incredible things happen. I got to go pick up my daughter. <laughs> I know we got to go. Listen, <laughs> yeah, this is so fun. I'm so honored to be so here. Good. And um, just, I, hope, I just, I just hope I get to come back for my sake. This is amazing. Oh, so. golly. You're coming back. You're coming on the Needle Movers podcast. Just so you know, there's so many conversations I want to have there. Yeah. But um, yeah, I could just go on and on. This is, this is a discovery um, opportunity for me. This is just yeah. the the continual peeling of the onion in regards to this topic. And I just appreciate you sharing. It was so rich. It's, this is one of the episodes where you all need to bookmark and just go back and listen to it again. Cause there's absolutely no way you got it all <laughs> in one sitting, but thank you for giving up on um, part of your day to record Thanks, for Deanna. my little 
um, spot in the podcast world. And um, I love you so much. Kingdom changing voice. (laughs) Thank you so much. I love you, Deanna. Have a wonderful day. I love you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Refreshed Moms podcast. Hey, if you're a fan of this podcast, I'd love it if you can leave a star rating and review. This helps put me in front of more beautiful women just like you. So before you hop off, stop by and click a star rating and leave a review. Don't forget, find me on Facebook and Instagram at Refresh Moms to receive your daily dose of refreshment. Let's connect again soon. All right. Bye for now.